Welcome to Old Boys Club. A show where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a stupid question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I am a journalist and I used to briefly work in politics. My name is Matilda Bosley. I am also a journalist and I used to work at like a hippie cafe. <laughs> Are you just running through jobs now? Every, every week we get a new job? Uh, no, because I only had two jobs before I was a journalist. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's, we've reached the end. We've reached, that's, that's it for the intros from now on. Yeah. Once I spilt honey all over the floor at the cafe, <laughs> like really bad. Like they had these vats of honey that you'd like fill up your own jars with. And then I was trying to like pull a scoop out of it. But then that, all the honey started running down and I was just there at like 14, just trying to catch <laughs> this slow moving honey in my hands again and again. And my boss is just looking at me as I'm just like my arm falls full of honey. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's talk about the stories for this week. Oh, none of them are great, are they? No, none of them are great. Coming up on the show this week, three Australians have now sadly died in India from COVID-19. Meanwhile, the first repatriation flights bringing Australians back from India arrived last week with only half the people it was supposed to. Remember how the government said they were going to fix it? Yep. They haven't. Yep. In other news, why is the vaccine rollout being criticised for missing out on disabled folk? Remember how the government said they were going to fix it? (laughs) They haven't. I'm seeing a trend. Um, There's also a new law that has been passed that allows the government to indefinitely detain refugees. How the fuck did that happen? Hey, remember how the government said they were going to fix it? I don't think they ever said they were going to fix that. Oh, no, actually, yeah, no, in fairness, they were like, no, this can stay broken. Yeah, this can stay. (laughs) They haven't fixed it anyway. But first, Matilda, how was your week? Oh, my God, Justine, thank you so much for asking. (laughs) It's literally in my script to ask you. (laughs) Okay, okay, take the compliment, Justine. (laughs) Thank you so much for asking. My week was good, but also profoundly disappointing. Okay. Okay. Why? So I booked in to be a blood donor. Yes, you told me. Yeah. Yes. Good person. That was last. Go- wheel, wheel, good person alert Sorry, over here. yes. That's such a selfless wow. thing to do, Matilda. I'm so brave, really, aren't I? Well, no, um, I was going with my mum and then she had donated before. Mm-hmm. And then I was going as a first-time donor. I filled out like a whole like mm-hmm. thing where it asks you like a hundred times, like, have you been to England in this specific time? The questionnaire is like so intense. Yeah. I go through all of this. They like are asking me all these questions. I go to like the nurse. I'm suddenly hooked up, blah, 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 sitting on the table. They put this whopping great needle in. It didn't hurt that much, but like you know, it was you're noticeable. Not, you're not supposed to look at it. I'm just gonna. Did you I, look no, at I it? I wasn't. See, I sent you a video of it, <laughs> but I did. Have you seen? Have I shown you the video? The last video I have of you is you peeing. Okay, <laughs> okay. Please provide the context it's like, of that it's situation. It's like a photo of your face, I and you're t- just like, I I'm was, I. It was eleven thirty p.m. I was at a bar. I was like, Justine will want to know that I came. So I sent you a photo of me smiling. There was no peeing scene on the shot. I need that slander to be taken off the air. I retract. I retract. That is Don't a sue beautiful me. friendship thing to do, Justine. It was the first time anyone's ever done that, and I felt. The, I felt no like. You a photo no, and I felt like those cool people in high school who had like really, really no boundaries friendships. Oh, see, I feel like that's a part of drinking culture that maybe like you have to sort of 
be in and about it. We're getting off track. The needle went into your arm. I haven't seen your video from (laughs) it. Oh, sorry. I took a video of it, but I didn't look. Uh, So I'm looking away. The needle's going into my arm and I just like hear something that you don't necessarily want to hear from a nurse, which is like, oh, no. (laughs) I'm like, oh, what? And then she like pulls the needle out and like sticks it back in a little bit. And then she goes, no blood. I'm like, what do you mean no blood? I have blood. What do you mean? No blood. And apparently my vein is really, really deep on that arm. And then they check the vein on the other arm and they're like, oh my God, the vein on your other arm is perfect. It's amazing. That's the plumpest, most juicy vein we've ever seen in our whole life. Uh, But they're like, oh, but you're a first time donor. So we can't like stick the needle into your other arm because you might faint. Yeah. And then, so I'd had a sticker on that said first time donor. And then they took the sticker off. I mean, I think the sticker was more of like a thing so nurses could watch you and like when you leave, they take it off anyway, but it felt personal. <laughs> That's rough. They did let me have the snacks though, and I'm going back next week. <laughs> You're only supposed to have the snacks because you've donated the blood and you need to replace all the glucose levels and stuff. Yeah, I said, am I still entitled to the snacks? And then they looked at me really sad because also like I couldn't just leave because I was there with my mum, so I just had to watch my mum get like, her blood taken. Like, we need to comfort just, like, you. They're just like bragging with this blood <laughs> coming yeah. out of rum yeah um so i was just sitting there on like the little chair and you know just looking dejected and disappointed i'm still Um, laughing over the no blood like what are you like just barren for blood like you're a vampire there's nothing in you apparently there's not a drop of blood in my body so (laughs) the first time you said oh no i thought that they'd stuck the needle through the other side of your arm oh no could you imagine uh, oh my gosh I feel like the point of this story is to not scare off people giving blood it really didn't hurt it was not an imposition it was fine most people are able to give blood and I'm going back next week yes it's a very important thing to do also like I don't mean to brag but I have O negative blood so like that's like the good <gasps> you're stuff. the unicorn oh you yeah, can feed everybody baby come and get my blood you're email like- in if you want a vial of my blood <laughs> Just in case anyone can have it, you yeah. can have it. You can have it. A negative, B positive. That's, oh, sorry. Actually, it's um, it's a Patreon subscription to get a yes, vial of my blood. When we set up a Patreon, that will be the top tier. <laughs> Amazing. Dean, how was your week? Um, I mean, I don't have any um blood. Neither giving. do I. I have no blood. That is the problem. I was gonna say blood giving stories. Um. But neither do I. That's the problem. <laughs> but I also had a good week, a very busy week. Um, I saw you five out of seven days last week. You're welcome. Which was a total, which made my week. It, it's what made it so great. <laughs> I feel like even my parents would agree that's a bit much. <laughs> um, but I saw you, one of those days was on Saturday, and I met up with you in the city to record for another podcast called You're in Good Company. Oh, my gosh. We did indeed. We did. Um, so if you haven't listened to it already, uh, we did an episode with this fantastic female-hosted podcast called You're in Good Company, which is all about explaining investing with the focus of explaining it to young women and empowering young women with the knowledge to kind of kickstart their financial future. Yeah, taking the bros out of finance bros, really, isn't it? Yeah, and also finance. (laughs) You know what? You've got a goddamn point. Yes. Uh, And we know nothing about finance. Nothing at all. (laughs) But you know what we did know about? The budget. Don't worry, we're not going to talk more about the budget, but we did with them about the finance side of the budget. And how it's going to affect your personal finances. So it's a really 
it's a good episode. You should go listen to it. So if you're keen, like if you're even vaguely interested about like investing and stuff like that, or you just like want to hear more about the budget, <laughs> let uh, me suggest that to you. But we literally know nothing about finances or investing to the point where when we were there in the recording session, I was showing Matilda this new coat that I bought and I was so excited about it. And I was like, yeah, I think it's really important, you know, to invest in in good pieces. And their ears pricked up and they're like, invest, do you invest? I was like, no, no, only in clothes. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> I buy nice clothes. statement <laughs> items. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely go listen to them for the financial advice. If you stick with us for the politics, if you listen to both podcasts and subscribe, we're pretty sure you're legally qualified to be the treasurer. Yeah. That's that's a fact. That's, that's how it law. works. Yeah, Josh yeah. Frydenberg has had to do it, so you should do it too. Before we get into the show this week, we just wanted to quickly shout out someone who made our first fan art. I, oh my god! I feel weird saying it's fan art because it's it's just so beautiful that I don't feel <laughs> like <laughs> appreciation. Appreciation art. It was so amazing. We're um, obsessed with it. I'm yes. in love with it. I want it on a t-shirt. Yes. So it's by the incredible Tom Roberts. It's a great cartoonist, and their handle on Instagram is at it's a Tom Life. It was. I cried. <laughs> yeah, Matilda actually we were sitting together at the table, and when it came, when we saw it on Instagram, and she was very emotional about it. So thank you so much, Tom, for the beautiful drawing, and uh, yeah, continue to astound us with your artwork it's amazing oh my gosh also um just while we are still talking about instagram um if you're listening to this right now please 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 uh if you take a screenshot and put it up on your instagram story tag us at old boys club pog it's just been it's been so amazing like we were on the apple new and noteworthy list we were on spotify fresh finds like it's been totally insane the response to this podcast so far and that's because of all of you guys listening and sharing and and getting more people to listen to it and also um those of you who left reviews on on itunes if you want to go leave us a review as well that really helps too well that's yeah the whole reason that we were able to get featured on itunes it's just oh anyway we're incredibly thankful Very and grateful. It, it kind of shows that yeah those tiny little things actually make such a huge difference if you are a fan and wanting to yeah help us out a little we really really appreciate it so just then turning to our first topic during this two-week period that the india travel ban was on we were hearing again and again and again from the federal government like as soon as this is over, as soon as, you know, the two weeks is done, we're going to be sending repatriation flights over. We're getting Australians out of India. We just need to pause for a moment. We're going to get them home. Those 10,000 people, they're coming home. Do not worry about it. Has it happened? Well, I mean, the first flight has happened. Yeah. How many, how many people were on that again? Oh, only like 80 80, yeah. Yes. And it was supposed to be about 150 people. Yeah. So what happened? Walk us through it. Okay, so... Last weekend, we had the first repatriation flight coming back from India. It was supposed to have, as I said, 150 Australians on it. And they were really focusing on bringing home the most vulnerable Australians yeah. over there. Even though, can we just put as a disclaimer, everyone over there is very vulnerable right yeah. now. Like yeah, the yeah, situation yeah. in India is very bad mm. when it comes to COVID-19. Uh, listen back to our previous episodes for more info on that. Yes, a little cheeky throwback there. But of this 150 people booked onto this flight – about 72 of them ended up not getting on the plane. And that's because around 40-ish people tested positive before the flight for COVID-19. And then another 30 were not let on the flight because they were like close contacts of those people. And immediately, I mean, this raised some questions, which is one, like, why wouldn't we be like kind of doing like a quarantine thing in India? Like the planes are leaving from big cities, right? Mm. So people are having to travel into these cities, which are like extremely COVID dense at mm. the moment to in order to get off the flight. So that's a problem to begin with. And then also 40-ish out of 150 is a way higher percentage 
of like cases than you would even kind of expect from India to begin with, yes. which raised a couple of questions. And we, to be clear, as a disclaimer before this, we absolutely do not have any answers as to exactly why that was yet. But one thing that sort of came up was... Yes. So one of the things was whether or not the testing was actually accurate. So these 42-ish people who were booted off the repatriation flight after receiving a positive COVID result, those tests are now being reviewed. And that's because several of those travellers, they got subsequent tests themselves and they discovered that those tests came back negative. And so there was questions like, you know, maybe they actually are positive and the second negative test was false. Yeah, so or- you, you, you can get false negative tests if mm. you have COVID, but it's not ridiculously common. And why there is a bit of question about these tests is because the laboratory that was used to pre-screen these passengers has Actually, the ABC has since discovered that it had its accreditation suspended by, like, India's National Laboratory Board mm. in April, yes. which isn't great. Like, India, like, to be clear, it's there's a lot of bureaucracy that goes into India. There's a lot of, like, competing accreditations and it's very complicated. But essentially, one of the central accreditations that you needed had lapsed. Oh. Um, yeah. Not a great sign. And And one of the big kind of criticisms is that – this laboratory had been chosen and contracted by Qantas to conduct these tests. Well, yeah. So Qantas had actually subcontracted out this testing. So it was like a testing agency who then subcontracted out the lab. And it's sort of like, once again, in COVID, anytime that something's gone wrong, you're probably going to find the word subcontracting in it, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes. There's some chain of like further down the line where things have gone very awry. And to be clear, Qantas had been contracted by the Australian government to conduct these repatriation flights. So the government to Qantas to a testing agency to this laboratory and somewhere in there, something's gone wrong. Now, Qantas have come out and they've said that the tests were all correct, But The Guardian reported this week that Qantas is also now using a different lab than the one that had conducted these totally accurate tests. So it's totally fine. We did nothing wrong. We will be doing things differently. (laughs) Never a great PR I mean, they kind of – they would have had to do it either way. But, yeah. yeah. It just, just, I think, makes everyone kind of question the the truthiness. And the issue is, of course, if someone could have been on that flight – and they didn't get on. Like, that is life or death. Like, mm. we're talking about, again, these were the most vulnerable people. And also, like, even to begin with, a lot of people are wondering about the sort of ethics of not bringing back people who are COVID positive. Because the whole point of getting people out of India is that if you are COVID positive, there is no guarantee that the medical system in India will be able to treat you, will be able to stop preventable deaths right now. It's buckling under the pressure of this wave. And a big criticism also was the fact that, sure, these people weren't allowed on the flight, but also no one replaced their seats. Like Mm. the government hadn't set up a repatriation system where if someone couldn't be on their flight in their spot, they couldn't just like quickly bring someone else on who was also of the 9,000, 10,000 people who are desperate to get back to Australia. Speaking of things getting really bad, we have had Australians die in India, haven't we? Can you tell us about that? Yes. So as of the time that this podcast is being recorded, there have been three Australians who have passed away from COVID in India. Um, and that has, again, attracted more criticism of, you know, why isn't the government bringing people home quicker? Um, because we are 
literally losing people. Also, the Prime Minister's response to this has been a bit strange. So he went on 2GB, which is a Sydney radio station on Wednesday, that he often likes to be interviewed by because um, the questions don't tend to be terribly difficult. They're a little, they're a little bit nice. <laughs> they're, they're, a little, they're quite he's – ch- he's chummy with the people yeah, there sometimes. Yeah, Not that. everyone. There's some great journalists at 2GB. But, um, yeah, there's this a reason. in particular. There's a reason he talks to them all the time. Um, And he was sort of asked about these people who had died and he goes, oh, well, you know, obviously it's a total tragedy – it's a total tragedy, but like you know, this this sort of stuff happens when people are out there. You know, when Australians are out in dangerous places, mm. and it's sort of like that's fair if you're talking about sort of someone who's like choosing to go to Afghanistan because they want to like you know see this temple, but they know there's a war going on. Like this isn't a dangerous place that people are <laughs> wanting to be in. But in fact, they they're very they're trying very hard to not be in a dangerous it's place. Not, it's not like people like looked on Smart Traveler like two years ago and it was like warning if a pandemic broke out and you got trapped here, things could get to shit. It's and then they still went anyway. No, no, no. It's like people were in India for work or traveling got trapped. Also, like the reason they can't get home is because we had a travel ban at the moment. Yeah. Like part of the and because there hasn't been enough flights in general. So I think that left a little bit of a sour taste. Once again, it's like you can view that generously as him just being like is really sad. We wish we could protect Australians all around the world, but it's just not possible. Um, or you, or could, be you a could bit like be oh, a bit like, oh, maybe. Yeah, mate. That doesn't seem <laughs> Scotty. great. Also, just to be clear, we're not saying that the Australian government has sort of sentenced these people to death. Like there are potentially people who will die from COVID no matter what. But there is a real question about if these people were among the people who are wanting to come home and if they had had the capacity to do that, what would their situation be right now? Would they have ever been infected? So speaking of that whole very large problem, what are we doing to solve it? Okay, so there is a second repatriation flight from India that has been organised for the weekend after this podcast is released. Problem, it's already booked out. Oh, whoopsies. The other important thing to note is that there are, in addition to these repatriation flights, commercial flights that are resuming to Australia. But to get on them, tickets are currently selling for more than $10,000 one way. Yeah. According to the uh, reporting from The Guardian Australia. Now, the pro is commercial flights only require you to do one of the tests, but to get on this flight, you've still got to pay $10,000. So people are saying it's really unfair. Like you're creating a system where some people may be able to get home faster, but those have to be people in a very financially privileged position. It's funny how it all comes down to capitalism at the end of the day. Yeah. Ah. A story to watch. Yeah. Look, we're going to keep you up to date as this all unfolds, but that's the situation as of right now. So turning to our next story for the week, it turns out that the vaccine rollout hasn't been all that successful for Australians living in disability care. Matilda. Yeah. Can you explain what has or hasn't been happening? Yeah, not a lot's been happening. That's Uh, the point. Okay, so indulge me for a second. I'm just going to explain the context for this. So remember when the vaccines were arriving and the government put out like this very exciting like graph that was like, here's all the different phases. Here, who's the top priority? Here's the order we're going to vaccinate in. Yes. Remember phase 1A? The most, the first one, the very important one. Yeah, still continuing, so that's kind of a surprise. So the people in phase 1A was like hotel quarantine workers, frontline health workers, and people in aged care and their staff, and people in disability care and their staff, residential disability care. Mm-hmm. So the whole pandemic, like, luckily feels like a while ago. But if you remember, we all know why aged care is so important to get these people vaccinated because, especially when you're in Melbourne where there was huge outbreaks, deaths in the hundreds, we know that coronavirus travels extremely quickly in those sort of enclosed 
environments and, you know, like care homes. And also the people who will catch COVID are the people who are already extremely vulnerable to that disease and where that disease is most likely to be deadly. Yes. And that was people living in aged care. Yeah, exactly. There's a whole bunch of things that make it extremely dangerous. So close proximity and vulnerable residents living in in that close proximity equals like a bad recipe for COVID to spread. I think, yeah, it's sort of like a Petri dish. Right. And what got less attention but also has all the same problems is residential disability care. Mm. We're still talking about like the the um, the care homes are a lot smaller often. Like, you know, it might be five or six people living in a disability care home compared to hundreds in an aged care home. But you still have this closed environment and people with disabilities, whether this be physical, intellectual, acquired brain injuries, there's a lot of other health issues that can go along with that, that can make them extremely vulnerable to COVID-19. So that's why they were on the top of the list there. Except we've been hearing bits and pieces along the way that actually the disability care vaccine rollout hasn't been going nearly as quickly as the aged care one, but we didn't really understand how profoundly the government had failed to vaccinate these people until Monday. Yes, so on Monday we had a hearing for a Royal Commission. Matilda, tell me about that. Yes, the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability has been ongoing and this is not just about COVID, to be clear. It's sort of looking into the whole system of disability and really kind of picking out what the government needs to be doing better, why we're seeing a lot of people in these vulnerable positions not being treated in the way that they should be. Mm. But they held a special committee hearing on Monday to specifically look at how the vaccine rollout for disability care has progressed along. So essentially they called everyone back. They're like, we need to deal with this issue as well. Let's quickly hear everything and then we'll go back to building our final report. And what did they find? They found, okay, there is 26,000 people in Australia living in residential disability care. After three months since the first person got the jab in Australia, we have so far vaccinated 999 people living in disability care as of Monday. Give me that number again of how many in total? 26,000. And we vaccinated? 999. That is 3.8%. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like, to be clear, this is one of the areas where it was like very clearly like the federal government's jurisdiction. Like I know there's sometimes, you know, there's a lot of questions about should the states be doing this? Should the federal government, the federal government is in control of this. Oh, quick plug. If you want to understand more about how the vaccine rollout works, listen to our very first episode. Yeah, that will we'll break down that whole argument between the states and the federal government. Yes. Um, and It's weird because there's not a huge level of answers as to why this happened. So basically the government had previously said, look, vaccine stocks aren't plentiful. We've got what we've got. We're going to prioritise aged care because, again, that's where the sort of 700 deaths came in. I think people need to remember that there was actually outbreaks in disability care in Melbourne during the large, you know, second wave. The lockdown last year, yeah. Yeah, but it just wasn't as big, obviously, nowhere near as big. So, okay, while vaccine stocks are low, like let's prioritise aged care, right? Okay, um, makes sense. Yeah, but Matilda, hasn't the vaccine rollout been doing kind of better? Yeah, it has. So we were talking for weeks about how terribly it's gone and how we have no vaccines. We actually have a bunch of vaccines at the moment. We have a lot of AstraZeneca. Which which very quickly pivoted. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, we have a lot of AstraZeneca, which is available to people over 50, which is a lot of the population in aged care. But at the moment, anyone over 50, like 
if you were over 50 right now, you could, you know, take a tram up to the exhibition building and get your jab today. You don't even need an appointment at the moment. And we've also got enough Pfizer that we've begun treating people under 50 who have sort of underlying health conditions. Yeah, people who are in these high priority vaccination groups. Yeah, but less of a high priority than the disability care. So 1B rather than 1A. And also like there's a lot of pictures of Olympians getting the jab at the moment as well to go to Tokyo. So this is true. I think in the early days it was understandable why maybe people in disability care would have to wait. But at the moment there's kind of no real explanation as to why they would have to wait this long. And this led to the council assisting at the Royal Commission, Kate Emery, labelling the rollout an abject failure, mm. the government's efforts. That's not mincing words. No, that's that's quite crystal clear. Yeah, and there was people, you know, who were living in these residential facilities, people with disabilities at the Royal Commission saying, like, we are the most vulnerable groups. Like clearly the government agrees with this because you put it on your chart, yet we have just been left behind. And it's often, I think, this sort of sense of does the Australian community look after our people with disabilities enough? Or is it more like, oh, they're off, out of sight, out of mind? Okay, so Matilda, how has the government responded to this criticism? Yeah, so the government spoke that day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They they, said some words. They came out and basically the government's plan was like, yeah, we do need to step it up. And, like, I think the Prime Minister has even since said, like, yeah, okay, it's it's not up to scratch. We're going to ramp it up, which it would be, like, hard for him to argue. It's like, pretty it's difficult to, like, find a public relations move here to get you out of this Although, totally. in fairness, the government's been saying that the vaccine rollout was fine for all those months where it very much wasn't, so oh, I wouldn't yeah, put it past true. them. Yes, true. Um, so, basically, he's come out and said, like, uh, you know, we need to step it up. But the initial response was, like, well, actually, we were prioritising aged care. Also, like, if you're in disability care, you can still just organise to go to your GP and get the vaccine like we're not stopping you this is only about like people who you know uh we are sending the teams to the homes but it's sort of like oh mm, you said you were going to send the teams to the home though so the government's been saying for a while now unclear if this was always the original goal but they've been saying for a while now that everyone in phase 1a will be vaccinated by mid-year and they're still committed to doing that oh a target <laughs> Haven't had many of those of late. Oh, Wowzers, would you look at that? Oh, Target. Oh, um, but just to be clear, what's the date now? It's it's end of May. What time is mid-year? Oh, what, that's June? End of June. Start end of June. Generously end of June. So we've just got like a cool <laughs> 25,000 people in disability care to vaccinate in one month when we've done 1,000 in three months. So... Yeah. Good luck with that. But also, you know, that's this is why we have royal commissions because this stuff gets exposed and the government has to act. Like, if you're wondering why these are important, it's because of hearings like this. So, Justine, I feel like there's some news stories that I don't quite understand and so I'll read the headlines and then kind of skip over them and then never really truly understand them. We've all been there. Yeah, and I feel like unfortunately this is one of those areas where I get a bit stressed. I like don't under- I don't fully get it and I, I haven't really looked into it so I'm very glad you're going to be explaining it to me today. Yes. Can you tell me about what there's been changes to the immigration laws? Tell me about that. Okay, so I think before we get into like what the, the new laws do, we should talk about how do our existing laws and systems in Australia currently treat refugees. What is Australia's current approach to refugees? Yes, so immigration detention in Australia is indefinite and that means that there's no limit in the law around how long a person may be detained. And some asylum seekers and refugees end up spending 
years in Australian immigration detention. There was a really great article in The Guardian this week by the reporter Ben Doherty. And legend. He, legend. 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 Great guy. Um, and he said that in 2012, less than 3% of people held in immigration detention had been there for longer than two years. So most people were out before two years. This was back in 2012. Yes. Yep. And in January this year, that figure was 30%. Meaning that so 30% of people held in immigration detention have been there longer than two years. 106 people have been there for more than five years. uh, And there are definitely people who live there who have been there for more than a decade. Yeah, we say live there, but like also it's not like these are – this is not just like a little town somewhere out there. Like these are detention facilities. Yes, yes. And it can be extremely mentally damaging for these people who are Mm. there who have no idea when they might get out. Yes. So that was a situation up until a week ago when a new law was passed that is giving the government way more powers when it comes to not only holding people in detention but also kicking them out of Australia. Okay, so explain to me what this law is. Okay, so it's called the Migration amendment and then in brackets clarifying international obligations for removal bill 2021 (sighs) so this bill which amends the current laws around refugee and immigration rights was tabled on the last day of the march session of parliament now that sounds a bit confusing Mm. so for anyone who doesn't know federal politicians don't just like live and sit in canberra every day they don't go to parliament house every day of the year there are certain weeks you know, a couple every month or, you know, one week here and then a few weeks later, another week there, where they all fly from around the country and congregate in Canberra. And it's during that week that they like really intensively go through all these laws, yell at each other a lot and pass a bunch of stuff. They are fly-in, fly-out workers in many ways, (laughs) right? it's really true. So yeah, if we think about why this is significant, so this bill was tabled on like the last day of the March sitting week. So that would mean that politicians actually really haven't had a chance to like discuss this and robustly yell at each other over it, I'm assuming? Yes, exactly. So there hasn't been a lot of time and the bill was passed last week. Okay. Like post-budget. Very quickly. The week of the budget when all eyes are on how the government is spending money they passed this very controversial law very quickly. Yeah, remember last week when we were joking like, oh, it's budget week, nothing else exists. Well, like that's actually a great opportunity for yeah, the, the government to kind of like... There's negative consequences of that. They can slip stuff in and people often do slip things in. Yes, My yes. favourite story is um, there's a journalism awards called the Walkleys and every <laughs> year the government will put out something quite controversial when they know that everyone's at the Walkleys. Oh. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, mm. or like releasing a media release at 1am, throwback to any listeners oh. of an episode a few weeks yeah, ago when God. we discussed that. Okay, Justine, so the law's been introduced in like a slightly weird way. Politicians haven't been talking about it. Why might they be trying to keep this hush-hush? What does the law actually do? Yes, so this law gives the government some pretty big powers that they didn't previously have over refugees who've already been granted a visa in Australia. Some pretty big towers on top of the already pretty big powers yep, that they have? Yeah, some pretty big powers on top of okay. those. So they now have the ability to hold refugees who've already been granted a visa in Australia in indefinite detention or strip them of their refugee status and send them back to their home countries. That sounds not great but also complicated. Walk me through what that actually means. Okay, the best way to walk you through what that means is to tell you about this really big court case that basically inspired these laws to come around. Okay, okay. okay. Walk me through it. Okay, so 
The case involved a child refugee who came from Syria Mm. and was given a refugee visa in Australia. So he comes as an asylum seeker, he's then granted a refugee visa and he's been able to live in Australia. Yes, but the government has the power to take away someone's visa in a few certain circumstances. So before you said that this new law helps them take away refugee status, that's different to refugee visas, yes, right? Yes, so, so the government before this law was brought in, they just have the power to take away the visa that someone has. They don't get, get rid of their status as a refugee, but it means like you don't have the right to live in Australia on this visa that we have given you. Because refugee status is something that's sort of defined by international law. That's like the yeah. UN actually defines sort of refugee status. Yes, versus the Australian government who can go, yeah, okay, yes, you've got a refugee status. We've confirmed this. Here's your visa. You can live in Australia. Yeah, okay. So the government already had the ability to take away this this refugee visa and it took it away from this kid after he was a teenager because when he was a teenager, he had a criminal conviction. Mm. So there are only a few circumstances where the government can take away a visa. It's like, You've been charged with criminal convictions in Australia. Yeah. Or like our version of the CIA, which is ASIO, sort of finds some like shady stuff Suspicious from your background. activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also, though, a pretty contentious one, which is that you can take someone's refugee visa away from them if they're just like associated with a group that the government or the minister has suspicions of. Um, doesn't doesn't even have to be proven that there is any like criminal activity or that you are definitely associated with them, but just like they suspect that you are. I'm assuming that's to like be able to take away the visa of like if they think you're kind of like chummy with ISIS, right? But like from everything I know about Western civilization, having something that broad seems like really rife to just kind of be abused on a somewhat racially loaded manner. Absolutely. And we don't have time to go into history of that, but yes, absolutely. Okay. Oh, it's oh, it's how it's turned out every single other time in all of history. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so they'd taken away the refugee visa of this teenager, but they had a problem. They couldn't send him back to Syria because he faced persecution there. So they put him in indefinite immigration detention. Okay, so when someone has refugee status, you can't, by international law, send them back to a country where they would be in danger. Yes. And so a lot of deciding whether you're a refugee or not is deciding whether you would be legitimately in danger. But yes. they had already approved him to be a refugee, which means they had already accepted you will face persecution if you go back to Syria. Exactly. And they can take back his visa, but they can't take away those words, meaning like, yeah, we admitted you're in danger. Am I on the right track? You're 100% on okay, the right cool, track. Cool, 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 cool. So they popped him in indefinite immigration detention. And at one point he was like, no, I like, please just, I don't want to be in here. He was there for six years. He wanted to get out. And the government was like, no, 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 we can't send you back to Syria. Like we, le- international laws, we can't send you back to Syria at this point. Yeah. He wasn't like just wanting to go back to Syria though. He was saying like, I would prefer to go back to Syria than to spend the rest of my life in jail. In indefinite detention. Yeah. So his lawyers took this to the courts and said, hey, government, you can't hold someone in indefinite detention because you've taken away their refugee visa but can't legally send them back to their own country. And the court said, yeah, you're right. The difference is when someone comes into Australia and they're waiting to get a refugee visa, they can be held in indefinite detention because they're awaiting a visa approval or they're awaiting to be sent back to their home country because they – have been deemed not to face persecution over there. They're they, not, yeah, they wouldn't have got that refugee status in yes, international law. Yes, so there's a very big purpose for them being in immigration detention. Whether or not you think that immigration detention is a, is a good thing or a bad thing, there's at least a purpose there. There's, there's something that you're working towards. Exactly. But in this case, there was nothing they were working towards because they weren't being like, oh, we're going to wait and give you back your visa. But they also weren't saying, 
oh, we're going to wait and send you back to Syria. Because, because they can't. Because they can't send them back to Syria. So there was this legal loophole that this created. And the court said, yeah, no, you can't hold someone in immigration detention without a purpose. Okay. Yes. Now, the government, oh, no. <laughs> the government wasn't too happy with this outcome. And they appealed the court case to the High Court in Australia. Mm. But they also have this kind of interesting power. Things are a bit weird in Australia in the sense that the courts are responsible for interpreting laws that the government makes. Okay. But the government also has the power just to make new laws. Oh, okay. So rather than having to go back to the high court and deal with it all in another court case Mm. to fight for that interpretation of the law, they're just going to change the law so there's no grey area. Yes. Oh, great. (laughs) Exactly. So they brought in this new law, the one that was passed last week, and it gives the government these two very big new powers that I mentioned at the start. Mm. They now have the power to hold someone in detention indefinitely if they're in this situation that the guy was in. Okay, so they can hold them in detention without a purpose. They can hold them in detention without a purpose. Yikes. And they can also strip them of their refugee status. Meaning, ah. meaning that they can send them back to their home country. Okay. So if you get your refugee status removed, can you like appeal that? We're talking about appealing it to the courts, right? No. So in, ah. in this new law gives the minister an unchallengeable power to withdraw someone's refugee status. You know what two words I don't want in <laughs> any law? Yes. Unchallengeable power. Yes. That. That? Yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I unfortunately do know the answer to this, but explain to me if this law can have such a significant impact on a certain group of people's lives, Mm. why didn't the moment this was introduced to the House we see Labor, the federal opposition, stand up and be like, how dare you try to pass this? This is cruel. This is horrible. We don't like this. Like, that's that's the opposition's job, right, to critique what the government's doing. Yeah, it's it's because Labor voted in favour. Okay, that would do it. Um, So... In order for a bill to pass parliament, it has to pass the lower house and the upper house. Lower house, government controls it, anything passes. They anything, just have a majority. They anything can get through they there. want yeah. passes there. Senate, upper house is where shit can get debated. Okay. But didn't hear because Labor voted with the government to pass it. They had the overwhelming majority. Was it all of Labor who it voted? It was all the- of Labor. Okay. Did anyone oppose it? Yes. So the Greens opposed it and they were very upset that it passed so quickly, but also a number of independents also stood against it. But like when you get to the Senate, the Greens and a couple of independents, that's not going to be outvoting no. all of the Liberal National Coalition and all of Labor. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so we've walked through what the lower house did, what the Senate did. Was anyone in government speaking up and being like, hey, 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 no, no, no? Yeah, so the government's own Joint Parliamentary Committee on Human Rights, so FYI, that's just like a group of people from both houses of parliament. They all sit on a committee together and they assess bills. And in this case, it's bills to do with human rights. Yeah. They said that the law presents, quote, a real risk that detention may become indefinite and may also have implications for Australia's obligation not to subject any person to torture or to cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment. So basically, they're saying that uh, these laws risk people getting tortured. Yeah, if we send them back to countries where they are in danger. Yeah, if we just strip them of their refugee status. Yeah. Human rights experts have also come out in droves against this new bill. So that includes the Human Rights Law Centre, a really important uh, legal advocacy body in Australia. They said that this new law has given the government the power to lock people up for the rest of their lives without any safeguards and strip them of their refugee status. And that's without any right to a trial. So human rights committees are against it and even a committee within the parliament has sort of laid out that there's problems with it. What 
is the government's justification for bringing this through? There's always some way you can look at some it. Some party line. Yeah. 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 So it's really interesting. When the law was introduced in March, the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, who's with the government, he said that the legislation was designed to strengthen Australia's non-refoulement obligations. Now, non-refoulement means the government's obligations to not send people back to their home countries if they are a refugee Mm. or their countries of origin, I should say. He really framed this as clarifying and strengthening Australia's human rights uh, obligations so that we can make sure we're meeting them. But He left out the part that it's doing so by giving the government the power to totally strip somebody of their refugee status and therefore not make it a crime for the Australian government to send someone home. Wait, so if they weren't allowed to send someone home before, that would seem pretty clear, right? That that seemed pretty clear. It seemed pretty firm. But they wanted to send some people back anyway. Okay, just getting my head around, I guess, where the sort of support for laws like this kind of come from. I think there's been quite a powerful sentiment from within sort of liberal national policy that if you want to come to Australia, you don't have the right to come here and then like make Australia worse in a way, like come here and commit crimes. And if you're committing crimes, then you're kind of giving up your right to, you know, be living in this place because we're helping you out by you being here. Right. Like, I'm not saying that that's, Mm. Uh, necessarily as opinion that's like that just, everyone shares. It's but a that's, justification. Yeah, that's that's kind of what the sentiment has been when it comes to sort of questions around visas for people who have committed crimes, right? Yes. Okay, so if that in very general terms is, I guess, the kind of thinking and motivation behind laws like this, what is the sort of general response when it comes to, you know, from, from human rights groups' perspective to that line of thinking? Yeah, so one of the criticisms of that way of thinking is that if you're an Australian citizen and you commit a crime here, especially as a teenager, you're probably not going to face indefinite lifelong jail Mm. and you're probably not going to be sentenced to death but if you're a refugee living on a refugee visa in Australia and you commit a crime as a teenager you now legally can be held in detention indefinitely and be sent back to your country of origin where you could be facing death yeah where there's a reasonable chance that you will face persecution which you know could be could result in per- yeah. persecution. So it seems like fairly extreme consequences for what might not be fairly extreme crimes. Exactly. That's all about we have time for this week, Matilda. Oh my God. But first, before we end, we want to give thanks to a couple of people for shouting us out on Instagram. Thank you so much to Ellen, Bear, Leah, Mac, Mary Rose, Alana, Sarah, Lauren, Kayla, Liz, Cara, Jordan, Yumiko, Fran, Denali, Jessica, Lizzie, Isabel. Garrett, Z-Feed, Kayla, Michelle, Lois, Freya, Charlie, and Brydens. Thank you so much for shouting us out. It means so much to us. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also want to acknowledge the country that you're joining us from and pay our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. If you want to join our incredible online community, you can find us on Instagram at Old Boys Club Pod, on Twitter at Old Boys Club Pod, or on Facebook, Old Boys Club Podcast Community. You can also send us an email, oldboysclubpod at gmail.com. Exactly. Our theme music is by the incredible Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. Mixing and editing by Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landis Hanley. And you're listening to Old Boys Club.
why is there an ant on my face? Oh, they do come in Why pairs. is there an ant on <laughs> my face, They do travel Justine? together. <laughs> why have I come into your house and there is an ant on my face? I just want to point out, Matilda, I really need to point out that both of these ants have been on either you or things that you've brought into my house. Colony in my car. They're not hurting anyone. <laughs> I'm seeing a pattern here. 